Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, policies and trends that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and this week our big topic is Iraq. What's going on there, what's happening in the increasingly violent regional confrontation around it and what it means for relations between the big players in the Middle East and the relations which they have with Western countries uh, like the US and, and Europe as well. I'm joined this week by Myriam Benrad from our Middle East and North Africa programme, who's sitting in Paris and who has been writing a lot about the Iraq situation, including interesting pieces in Le Monde and the Nouvelle Observateur, which we'll be putting up on our website. Julian Barnes-Dacey, also from our Middle East and North Africa programme, who um, has been following Iraq for a long time, but also leading a lot of our work on Syria. And um, also by Vesla Chernova, our Director of Programmes, who has been to Iraq several times uh, in previous life when she was working for Nikki Mladenov, who was then Foreign Minister of Bulgaria, but is now the UN's Special Envoy to Iraq. So... Um, why don't you give us an overview of, of what's happening at the moment, Miriam, to, to kick off the conversation? Uh, thank you, Mark. Well, the, we are witnessing a, a clear and, and massive deterioration of the situation in Iraq uh, that is multiple. Of course, the, the jihadist uh, uh, offensive launched uh, a few days ago by the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, which is a an emanation of the Al-Qaeda branch in Iraq historically um, has come as a, as a surprise to many observers and the Iraqis themselves. Um, they, uh, as we've seen, the, the jihadists conquered in, in record time uh, several cities, uh, parts uh, of, of, of northern and, and central provinces, and, uh, and they were heading towards Baghdad until the, the government launched a, a, a beginning of counteroffensive and and uh, Ayatollah Sistani, who is the highest religious authority on the Shiite side, called for uh, believers Shia to uh, take up arms and stop the progression of uh, ISIS. So this is, a, this is an unprecedented situation. We've not seen that uh, in the past, including under the, uh, the American occupation. It also, in my view, questions the whole political process. This offensive comes uh, um, a few weeks after the results of the last uh, parliamentary elections that gave al-Maliki and his coalition the state of law uh, coalition uh, victory. And uh, the question is now, to what extent can Maliki be saved? Uh, negotiations or talks at least are ongoing at present between uh, the U.S. and a number of Iraqi leaders uh, for a possible replacement of the prime minister uh, that ha who has clearly polarized uh, Iraqi society over the last years. He was first elected in 2006 and he had promised national reconciliation. And as we've seen, this didn't happen. And Iraqi society kept uh, polarizing with one key question, which is the Sunni uh, situation, the alienation of Sunnis that has become a structural phenomenon since 2003 and was exacerbated by Maliki's policy uh, of exclusion and, as I said, polarization, including the Kurds, uh, who uh, clearly stated that they would oppose a 
third term for him. So the question is, to what extent can we maintain a political process uh, in the present situation? And to what extent also is there a role for the Europeans to weigh in more heavily, more strongly in order to uh, bring the, the Iraqi uh, protagonists, actors uh, around the table? But before we get to the Europeans, because I don't think we're, we're necessarily the, the key actors in the region, maybe, Julian, you can tell us a bit more about how what's happening in Iraq, the sectarian divisions that Myayam was describing relate to, to those which are going right across the region and how, how also the Syria, uh, the links with the situation in Syria and the, um, the implications for, for wider regional security. Sure, well, I think... It, 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 it's very easy, in, in a sense, to, to, to quickly look at what's happening in Iraq and to see the situation in Syria, and in a sense to assume that they are one and the same conflict. Um, and, and, and clearly ISIS has succeeded in establishing this pseudo-jihadist state in a, in a territory that, the, the size of Jordan almost, um, which, which is immensely worrying in one degree and also does link the two states together. But I think what's, what's important to... To note is that really ISIS is exploiting, hijacking two distinct conflicts. And I think um, what is happening in Syria and what is happening in Iraq, although they have very uh, a number of similarities, in a sense they mirror each other in that they are both about the, the, the desire of, of Sunni populations uh, and others, but, but predominantly Sunni populations for greater representation um, each of those struggles is very much uh, grounded in, in, the, in the domestic circumstances of the, of the same two countries. So I think it would be a mistake to quickly see this as one and the same. Clearly there is a sectarian um, uh, battle unfolding in the region and, and what's happening in, in Iraq will play into that. Regional powers will be quick to back respective sides based on, on, on sectarian allegiances. You have the Iranians who are supportive of Maliki, a Shia ruler. You have the Iranians who are supportive of Assad, who is not a, a, a Shia ruler but, but is pushing back against the Sunnis um, and as such is seen as, as part of that alliance. And, and on the other side, as I say, you do see this, this groupings of, of, of Sunnis. So, so there is that kind of broad sectarian dynamic. It's very dangerous. It's getting worse. The religious undertone brought, brought about by ISIS who, who really are driven first and foremost by this religious fervor is, is very dangerous. But, but as I said at the beginning, they are, they are first and foremost two different conflicts grounded in different circumstances, well, and it would be a mistake to see them as, as one and the same. Well, a lot of the same people are fighting in both. I mean, I, there's not a lot really. of evidence that not, ISIS... Not really in a sense, because actually in Iraq what you've seen is this alliance of ISIS which is actually numbers perhaps a, a, a few thousand, the low thousands, uh, allied with... with local tribal figures with neo-Bathists. They have ex exploited uh, 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 what you could call a Sunni rebellion that has been going on for two years now in Iraq. Um, they have provided the muscle in a sense, but, but um, this is very much about the Iraqi Sunnis wanting a greater stake, state, stake within the Iraqi state. Um, and it's the same within Syria. The jihadists, ISIS, have come in and have sought to hijack what has been uh, a, a cross-sectarian but increasingly Sunni uprising against minority Alawite rule, but they're not one and the same. You don't see Syrians who aren't associated with ISIS joining Iraqis who aren't associated with ISIS in their respective struggles. Okay. So, Vesla, you've been uh, 
involved in thinking about Iraq from an external perspective? I mean, what does the the what's happened in Iraq mean for uh, for external actors? I mean, we saw immediately after the the crisis erupted um, a kind of unprecedented way of talking about Iran in in the U.S. When Kerry talked about the chances of, of working more closely with them, the British embassy um, by coincidence was. Open, reopened in Tehran just as these things were, were hotting up um, and Obama you know, came out yesterday and um, made a, his speech is now sending some military advisors. I mean what, what do you think the role is for external actors and do you think that this is going to be uh, a game changer in terms of the, uh, the relations between them? Uh, one element that has not been mentioned so far in the whole mosaic of Iraq, I think, is the Kurdish one. And this is uh, something that also has a lot to do with your question on external actors. The Iraqi Kurds um, have become kind of the third independent factor, uh, not only in Iraq, but also in the in the regional puzzle. And... Uh, they have now also started to uh, basically uh, get uh, the main elements of a of an own statehood more or less uh, and they're probably the biggest winners of what is what is happening in Iraq if they're winners at all uh, so Turkey is uh, kind of the big um, power outside that uh, has this has uh, chosen to to support um, kind of uh, quasi-independent Kurdistan. Uh, for the other actors, I think it's a, it's a big um, domestic problem, as we have seen with foreign policy in general lately, uh, being more of a domestic uh, kind of uh, uh, issue uh, than than ever before. For uh, obviously, for the U.S., uh, this is uh, an issue of credibility. It is uh, about the uh, Obama doctrine and to which extent uh, his uh, red lines in the Middle East can hold. Um, for Europe, uh, which is the big absentee in the Middle East, um, or, or at least in Iraq uh, and, and, and Syria so far, uh, for Europe as a whole, this is, uh, this is going to primarily be, uh, at least at this point, an issue of migration and a security issue. Uh, with very few political instruments. And uh, we can see that uh, uh, politically uh, Europe uh, doesn't seem to be really ready to, to take uh, a role. One thing which there's a lot, of, a lot being written about in the newspapers is the extent to which this could be uh, a moment when things have got so bad that they can start getting better again. So um, David Ignatius, for example, had an interesting piece in Washington Post a couple of days ago where he talked about Kissinger, uh, about Kissinger and the idea of a world restored and the concert of Europe. And he was saying that the only way forward on this would be to have some sort of regional uh, forum. That's something which uh, Julian, um, uh, you and the rest of the men team have been arguing for for a long time on Syria investing a lot of hopes in Geneva too as a possible forum. Um, at the same time, on my trip to, with, with you, Julian, and with others from the MENA program to Iran and Saudi Arabia recently, I didn't get the impression that 
at that stage, that this was before Iraq erupted, that uh, the that they were ready for um, some kind of grand bargain, um, both because the the conflict seems to have done a lot to to help with domestic politics in both countries. It elevates the two countries to be fighting this kind of titanic struggle against each other. I think they have real security worries and real there are real geopolitical threats out of this conflict. But at the same time, um, in Iran, it does distract from some of the economic problems related to sanctions. And in Saudi Arabia, it does make the Saudis the leaders of, of the Sunni world, the fact that this is going on. I mean, does this change the calculus in a big way? Obviously, um, also impacts on how external powers come in. And it'd be great to hear from all three of you um, what you think about that. But it, but my feeling when I was both in Tehran and in Riyadh was that the great Satan is no longer the US in Tehran. It's now Saudi Arabia. And that's more than reciprocated on the Saudi side. They see Iranian plots behind everything that's going wrong. And in that way, rather than seeing the West and the US as the kind of uh, guarantees of stability as the people who make the weather in that part of the world. We now seem to be more of a resource that can be deployed, that can be dragged into particular conflicts, whether it's Syria or other places, to help pursue what is the real struggle, which is that the struggle between those two powers. What, what, I mean, I don't know who wants to come in on that. Um, Julian, you want to? Sure. I mean, I think it, it, it's interesting that the rise of ISIS is the one thing around which everyone is agreed. Um, I think regional actors, um, including both Iran and Saudi, um, are very concerned by the rise of ISIS. Um, it's a clear threat to, to the likes of the Saudi regime, which are in direct competition uh, to this jihadist Islamist model, which, which is so fervently against them. And, of course, for the Iranians, it threatens the, the, the position of their ally in Iraq, um, Maliki. So, I mean, the, the threat of militant jihadism scares everyone. It scares everyone on the international level, the Americans, the Europeans. I mean, if there was to be an issue around which people could could come together, this would be it. But um, I'm, I'm not convinced in, uh, on a regional perspective we're, we're at that place yet. I think that the, the, the threat posed by the likes of ISIS um, is not yet uh, or doesn't surpass yet the interests that, that drive the, the, the regional Cold War that we're now witnessing in the region. And I think particularly for the likes of the Saudis, they're going to be measuring up the risks uh, that, that come with the likes of ISIS against the potential offered by a Sunni uprising that allows them to push back against Iranian influence in Iraq. And it, 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 I think it's important to say that in Riyadh, uh, the, the, the switch of, of Iraq from Sunni to, to Shia Iranian influence post-2003 is very much seen as the defining moment when, when Iran began its, its, its hegemonic, hegemonic conquest across the region. And so if this is an opportunity to push back in that key strategic country... Um, I don't think that they will necessarily decide to hold back because of the threat of ISIS. So I think these zero-sum strategic regional interests don't yet... um, haven't yet been been sidelined to the extent that that, that kind of a common interest around ISIS will will unite them, but but I don't know what the others think. One uh, one, uh, very small remark. The first time when I went to Iraq and I realized that Maliki was quite a lonely leader, uh, but however had two very strong supporters, and these were the U.S. and Iran, and that he was the only 
focal point in the whole world where probably these two powers coincide in, in, uh, in their interests. And I think this is uh, something which now has also its influence in how we, how we look at this, uh, this crisis, why Maliki is so important um, and, and why we have to also take into account um, the diversity of, of the whole region and uh, uh, the fact that we not only have the Kurds and the tribes that uh, transcend national borders, uh, but also we have uh, the old regime, we have the, the Basists uh, who kind of thought that this was also a counter-revolutionary moment for them. I would be very interested to, to hear what Miriam would say about that. Um, I concur with everything that was said. Um, I think that we're witnessing a, a very paradoxical dual logic of uh, dissolution of the nation states that were uh, that emerged from World War One and, and and the Sykes-Picot agreements, and at the same time, um, those pushing for the the awakening of of certain allegiances, subnational identities. And Visida very rightly uh, emphasized the role of tribalism that that you know was suppressed um, quite forcefully by by the regimes uh, after the after the after I mean under the the, the mandates and and then you know further under the the, the national uh, construction processes in in most of the Arab states. So this tribalism is coming back, and at the same time, and I think this also. Uh, goes for 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 a country for a state like Saudi Arabia, there is this anxiety about uh, reshuffling or remodeling the Middle East and questioning the national borders inherited from uh, the colonial period. Um, and this is where I think we we could have ground for having uh, these actors, regional powers, at the table um, once they start feeling. Uh, f directly affected by the by the proxy wars that they've been uh, uh, waging for years now in, in Iraq, of course, but also in Syria. On the this specific point about the end of Sykes-Picot and the borders, I mean, do you think that there are going to be new states that come out of this, or is it just going to be a messy thing where you have a kind of simulacra of statehood in? I think you, you do have a number of forces, including ISIS, transnational movements that question these national borders. But I think this is, again, where uh, when, when the threat, the transnational uh, threat or this questioning uh, becomes too threatening, including to uh, states like Iran, Saudi Arabia and beyond, and also Turkey, um, um, this, this is when, in my view, uh, will have more uh, windows of, of opportunity for bringing all these actors to the table. And this might start with the current Iraq crisis, because as Julian also rightly put it, uh, there is a clear convergence of views today around, uh, around the, the priority uh, of fighting ISIS, the progression of the jihadists in the region. And uh, this is where, in my view, the, the international community and Europe in particular have to uh, also take their responsibilities and weigh more heavily uh, on a diplomatic level, on a political level, uh, to, uh, to help that process uh, happen. This What's goes also mean? for domestic politics. Um, whether Maliki stays or not, the international community will have to push for national reconciliation uh, or at least 
uh, a dialogue between uh, antagonized political forces. But, but they are already pushing for that, I think. Uh, this uh, is the only p meaningful political effort that I have uh, heard of uh, so far, and it doesn't seem to be to be working and in the current parliament it doesn't seem that they can even create a quorum to 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 talk about uh, basic things like a curfew so i don't know how you can get to a regional to to a political reconciliation uh, from i, I don't think i don't think that uh, the efforts deployed by the international community are enough at least uh, regarding iraq and the other thing is that you have a, a clash of perceptions today that has become so found uh, between Sunnis and Shia in particular, uh, that there will be, in my view, need for more uh, proactive diplomacy. I don't think this is the case for the moment, but also because it's been very hard for the U.S. after nearly a decade of occupation to impose uh, anything politically on the Iraqis. But this is where, I, in my view, the Europeans should be much more proactive uh, since they're seen uh, by some Iraqi actors are more neutral and uh, more disposed uh, to help them again on a political level. Uh, but of course, in the end, you're right, this has to be uh, implemented, launched by the Iraqis. Uh, and for the moment, uh, unfortunately, Maliki, in my view, hasn't been uh, the right person, the right leader for doing Gee, that. You know, and whether he stays or not, it doesn't change the fact that we'll have to, uh, there, there will be a need for national unity uh, government. Thanks, Miriam. Julian, you were uh, dying to come in a bit earlier. No, I, well, I, on, on that last point, I, 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 I wonder whether we're past a point of no return, in a sense. I think the polarisation between Maliki um, and the system that he represents, to be honest, it's not just him personally, but it, it, it's the fact that there is now sheer dominance that, 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 that both pushes back against Sunnis, but, but which Sunnis also resent, having controlled the state for so long. And I think that marginalization and that polarization has come, come so deep that really it is going to take some fundamental reordering of, of, of the structures of power um, if there is to be any hope of, of drawing them together again. And I think if it does happen, it will be in a very loose structure. But clearly, to move back to ISIS, if you are going to move against ISIS, um, whether it's Maliki's uh, proclaimed anti-terrorism campaign or the West's proposed or not proposed, but, but any desires to get Western military intervention, clearly that alone is not going to work. I mean, it, the, ISIS is embedded in the local Sunni population at the moment, and it is going to take some kind of political deal that actually uh, peels away the hardcore ISIS from the broader Sunni rebellion and, and in a sense creates a second, second awakening where Iraqi Sunnis actually push Iraqi, uh, push ISIS out that, that is actually going to make the difference. But I think the second important point to note here is that this is, this is linked to Syria in the sense that ISIS has space to operate and maneuver in, in Syria. And until that space is closed down, any attempt to, 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 to move on, on, on ISIS, whether politically or militarily, is likely to fail. I mean, it's clear that you have to work on the two countries in tandem. Now, I don't think there's a common solution to the, to the different crises, which are providing space for ISIS to maneuver. Um, but, 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 but looking at them in isolation or looking at Iraq and forgetting about the need to create an environment in Syria where ISIS is not able to flourish it is clearly going to be key to any settlement. So um, where does that leave the, the whole question of um, Iran? Because that's something we talked about a bit before and it's something where, where there's been a, a lot of um, 
discussion. Um, we we got another few weeks before another month before the nuclear deadline, so the nuclear negotiations are going on. Um, I spoke to an Iranian analyst this morning who um, said that publicly the Iranians have decided that they don't want to be seen to be collaborating with the US, but that privately they it's a bit like 2001, they're going to do as much as they possibly can together behind the scenes. Um, is that enough to be a sort of game changer in that relationship? In the relationship between the US and Iran? Yeah, and I, the West I, more. I personally generally. don't think so. I think that's, you know, it's going to be a narrow tactical convergence of interests and, and the nuclear issue is, is the game changer. I don't know what the others think. The fact that Maliki uh, was kind of the, uh, the the link between the US and Iraq for in Iran for quite some time didn't have any kind of influence on their overall relationship. So I would tend to agree with Julian on that one. And Miriam? Well, I think Iran, uh, Iraq is strategic for the uh, for Iran. And um, Maliki was not especially, uh, by the way, the favorite uh, person for, the, for Tehran. Um, it will be interesting to see how uh, events unfold and, and who... Uh, the next successor of Maliki might be. Uh, there are three names already out out there, and uh, but I I I, th- I see. I mean, I don't see uh, again as Julian said the Shi uh, dominance uh, change because um, for the moment Iran is is in a logic of reinforcing its presence and and sort of you know keeping Iraq as as its sanctuary. Uh, but things might still uh, be be better if they. Manage to come up with a successor who would be less uh, marked, uh, negatively marked than Maliki has been so far. I suppose the final thing which we should end on is, is to think about beyond the sort of political and diplomatic pressures that you've talked about before, what uh, scope there is for external action. US is sending its 300 advisors, uh, certainly more than 300 Iranian advisors already hard at work in different bits of. Uh, of Iraq, but what chance do you think there is of a military escalation involving external forces? Is Obama going Obama to manage to to continue avoiding um, uh, doing very much? Um, do you think that they, that the West should do more? Any of you? Are there any um, uh, people in favour of airstrikes or other action here? I would Best say that, that uh, the the big failure of the of the uh, EU and the US uh, in Syria is uh, is a, a big um, factor in in what is what is happening in Iraq today. So this uh, regional spillover that um, our colleagues from the MENA program have been talking about for quite some time is uh, is happening just in a way that we didn't we didn't predict, and it's happening in a more brutal way. Uh, we're talking about uh, the risks for Jordan as being the next target of ISIS. Um, we're talking about uh, the, the danger for for Lebanon. Uh, all this uh, could have been uh, preventative uh, if the West had a had a better strategy for Syria from the very beginning and had engaged. Uh, I don't know if like we Tony are not. So I don't know if yeah. we're not at a point of no return. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I would personally, in a sense, have sympathy for Obama's position that, that 
prior to any any action, there has to clearly be a political settlement. And, and I think the Europeans and the Americans are being very clear that unless there is some attempt by the Iraqi government to shape an inclusive political deal that brings in the Sunnis, uh, there's no hope or no prospect whatsoever of, of Western military intervention. My personal view is that that would be foolish whatever happens. I mean, I think, yes, ISIS will need to be confronted militarily. There's no doubt about that. But I think it has to be done by, by Arabs, by Iraqis, by Syrians. Okay. Very briefly, Miriam, do you agree with that? Well, I agree. I think that uh, to uh, complete uh, Julian and Vesela's points, I think there, there needs to be a mobilization of the Sunnis themselves against ISIS. Um, because for the moment, uh, ISIS has managed to take over and gain sympathy uh, among within the Sunni population because of Baghdad's policies and because, as I said, this clash of perceptions and the sentiment of the Sunnis since 2003, that they uh, are on the margin of, of the transition of the political process. So so there, there, it's twofold. There needs to be a more inclusive government, a political settlement, and uh, a figure, even she, that could bring to the table the Sunni moderate opposition and empower Sunni leadership. That would help mobilize Sunnis in their uh, territories, in their regions, against ISIS. Uh, I think that the the, the settlement will come from these two uh, uh, aspects. Thank you very much. So that brings us to the final segment in the um, podcast, which is the the bookshelf thing. So in a sentence or two, uh, Vesla, tell us what's on your bookshelf for the moment. I am uh, reading the German press. Uh, So I just, uh, I'm checking how... The German diplomacy is looking at Iraq, and it seems that they're first looking at Washington, looking at the reaction of Obama, and then judging for their own position. So it's it's uh, recommendable. Great. And uh, Julian, what are you reading? Uh, perhaps sadly, predictably, I'm reading something on the Middle East. It's um, a book called The Good Spy, The Life and Death of Robert Amos. Um, it's a it's a story of, of the, the, the beginnings of the CIA and the post-World War II era, and this particular spy, um, Robert Amos, and in a sense a nostalgic, sympathetic take on the good old days of spying when it was about establishing relationships and, and human intelligence as opposed to waterboarding and um, the, the, the likes of Guantanamo Bay, but it kind of paints a nostalgic picture of the Middle East in the post-World War II era. Thanks. And Miriam, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading several books, but I'd like to mention one and recommend it. Uh, it's Ahmed Sadawi's book, novel, that won uh, this year's International Prize for Arabic Fiction. It's called uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad, and uh, I really recommend it because uh, it's both, uh, of course, dark. It's a reflection of on violence, uh, on, on the daily life of Iraqis, on their helplessness. And at the same time, it's, I think, uh, um, a sign that... Uh, uh, literature, art uh, survived uh, all of this, uh, all of this darkness, uh, all of this violence, and it's a really good book uh, that is very political as well. And uh, as I said, uh, a symbol of the fact that uh, Iraq still produces art, literature, artists, and that uh, civil society is still uh, very lively despite uh, the tragic uh, conditions in in which it, it lives on a daily basis. Wow, that sounds amazing. Um... I've been reading something a bit less uh, ambitious, but um, it's quite rare that public intellectuals and writers end up defining um, what presidents and prime ministers talk about. But there is an essay 
which came out a few weeks ago in The New Republic by Robert Kagan called Superpowers Don't Get to Retire, where he talks about um, uh, it's a critique, a very kind of nuanced critique of uh, Obama's position um, and the Obama doctrine, which seems to have really got under the skin of the uh, of, of both Obama and the White House. They even apparently invited him in to the White House for a lunch after uh, after writing this essay. Some people saw um, Obama's West Point speech and his statement last night in part as a as a response to this essay. It's classic uh, Bob Kagan in the style of his previous essays on power and weakness and on. Uh, the end of history. It's in uh, this week's New Republic. Superpowers don't get to retire. He, I think, ha- his the strength of his work comes from the fact that he puts the opponent's case quite well before then dis- uh, destroying it. But anyway, so it's very elegant and it's a good and stimulating read. So that brings us to the end of uh, this podcast. That was the the World in Thirty Minutes, ECFR's weekly podcast. There were links to all the things that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, as well as lots of other great material. Please send us emails and messages um, uh, or write on the page if they're things that if you have any reactions to what we said or have suggestions for future segments. The um, editor of ECFR's podcast is Brian O'Connell. Our producer is Dina Pardice. Um, but for now, from... Julian Barnes-Dacey, Vesla Chanova and Miriam Benrad and myself, Mark Leonard. It's thank you and goodbye.